this thick, and I, I cut stuff out, and even this morning, I even cut more stuff out, because it was so much. So I would encourage you, in light of that, I'm just going to make two points today in this passage. Go over this passage in your own time, and just because even though it's short, like four verses, there's so much in here for us, and I didn't want to keep preaching from this passage for the next 10 weeks, and everybody thinks Mark would never end. So we're going to get through this. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we... Uh, get to this next controversy that Jesus causes among the people. Father, we um, are here to worship you. And so, Father, as we listen to your word today, we pray that our, our act of worship by being attentive to your spirit speaking to us would, would rise, God, that we would not push away your spirit as you convict us, as you teach us, as you walk among us, God, to lead us into the truth of the gospel. Father, in light of these things, today we're going to talk about we are so encouraged that in Jesus, when we placed our faith in him, that we have been saved. There is salvation in your name, Jesus, and by our faith and the work that you have done on the cross, God, you have made a way for us. And so, Father, in light of that, we want to follow you. Open this passage up to our hearts and our minds that we might take these truths into our lives and follow you in them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So once again, as Jesus is in his ministry in Galilee, he, uh, of course, uh, starts another controversy. And really, he didn't start it. He's just doing what Jesus is doing, right? It's the people around him are observing what he's doing, and he's doing it in a way that is kind of rocking the boat, right? And um, if you notice the, the ministry of Jesus, boats weren't rocked too much for non-religious people. They just kind of, they, they got what Jesus was doing. It's for the religious people and the people that were set in the way, the Pharisees and the established, established religion of the day. They began, Jesus began to rock the boat just by living a life that was honoring to God. So Jesus uh, enters this next controversy over fasting, which is really the controversy is more than just about fasting. It's really about the place of tradition. Where does tradition, where does the old things fit in the new life that Jesus is about to inaugurate? So the first point is this that Jesus makes is there are times to celebrate and there are times to mourn, and they're not the same. We need to distinguish between when we celebrate and when we mourn. So this is how it's introduced in the Gospel of John, verse 18. Now, John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. Uh, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So the disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees, and they're fasting regularly, which is pretty much the, the way that the, the Jews did it in those days. They were, uh, the Pharisees were fasting for a reason we'll get to in a second, but John's disciples were probably fasting in order to, so the Messiah would come. Just because John says once, this is the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, doesn't mean that they all understood what that meant. And so John's disciples are still doing what John's disciples were doing. They're fasting, waiting for the Messiah to be revealed. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they're observing all the laws in the Old Testament. And um, there were ritual fasts prescribed in the Old Testament. And they also, in this period of time, they also added fasts on Monday and Thursday. So in addition to what the Old Testament prescribed, the Pharisees say, we're going to do that one better. We're also going to fast on Mondays and on Thursdays. Um, it was probably just a way to say, see, we are more holy than everyone else, because we're doing this extra stuff. We're not only doing what the law says, we're also fasting on uh, uh, Monday and Thursday as well. 
In the Old Testament, the Day of, the Day of Atonement is the only fast that's actually mentioned in the New Testament. That's in Acts chapter 27. It was only, the only fast mandated for all of Israel, that everybody in Israel had to uh, fast on the Day of Atonement. It's not the Day of Atonement, so that's not what the disciples, these people are asking about fasting. They're asking something that's totally different here. Uh, there were other fasts uh, that Israel uh, kept. Uh, some were inaugurated after the exile, uh, but most of them were really about expressing humility and repentance and longing for the chosen one to come. So really fasting wasn't just like I'm seeking God's face like we do it today. It was really I'm going to humble myself so that God will see that and then the Messiah will come. That was the purpose for fasting in the first century among the Pharisees and John's disciples. So what's happening here, people are observing this party at Levi's house. Right? That's, that's the context here. They're at Levi's house. There's a party going on. They're having a great time. The, the disciples are with Jesus. They're partying it up. And they're having a grand old time. It's a big party. And, and the, disciples are, the disciples of John and the Pharisees are watching and go, why are they celebrating? They should be mourning. Messiah hasn't come. We're under the oppression of the Romans. What are you people doing? And so they really come with this accusatory question. Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? What's wrong with your disciples? So basically they're asking this. Jesus, if you're so spiritual, why don't you make your followers live up to our high religious standards? Why don't you make your people, your disciples, live up to the standards that religion says you should live up to? Why aren't you like us? Why isn't every church like our church? Because we're so good here. And that's what, basically what they're doing. We're better, and your disciples aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not as holy as they should be. And so if you do what we do, then you live to that standard. So why, Jesus, are you allowing this to, if you're who you say you are, or if you're such a great rabbi... Why do you let your disciples live at such a low standard of piety, of, of holiness? And so despite the prophet's warnings this is throughout the Old Testament that fasting without a repentant heart was in vain, the, the, the Pharisees still promoted fasting. And the reason was many believed that this vigorous fasting, what the law says and, and the additions to the law, was really a foolproof method of earning God's favor or action. So in the back of their mind, they're going, I want God to love me. I want God to be pleased with my actions. So the more I fast, the more I sacrifice, the more I you know, do myself, in many cases, harm, then the more God will show me favor, the more that God will do things for me, or especially on behalf of Israel. So the Pharisees' own intention resembled this misconception that they, they wanted to earn God's approval so that God would act on their behalf and possibly even free them from, from Roman oppression. And, uh, and it makes sense. Um, so they, they really want to know why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. And it, the question really is, don't, doesn't Jesus care about deliverance from Rome? Doesn't Jesus care about Israel? Because this is how you get favor from God. This is how you get God to move when you fast and sacrifice everything. Then God is always obligated to do something for us because we're so pious, because we're so holy, because we're so righteous by doing this fasting thing. Now remember, Jesus was not opposed to fasting. In fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus actually assumes that his disciples would fast. So he's not actually talking about that they shouldn't fast. There's something different going on here. 
fast that Jesus wants are generally directed to God. They're not for this public display to please God or to get the favor of men. So this is how Jesus answers that question, why his disciples aren't fasting, and rather they're partying rather than mourning because Messiah hasn't come and they're under the oppression of Romans. Jesus answers in verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. What we know is that Jesus expected his followers to fast. He expects people that follow him to fast. So in that context, the, the answer is interesting. He responds with a parable in which it's about a wedding, that he is the bridegroom, and his disciples are the guests at this feast, this wedding feast, at the reception. And Jesus is essentially saying, what you Pharisees don't realize is the Messiah is already here. The bridegroom is here. And I'm with my followers now, and, and when you're at a wedding, when the bridegroom is with the guests, you don't mourn. You celebrate. You're filled with joy. This is a joyous occasion. It's a time to celebrate, not a time to mourn. Not a time to be sad. Not a time to focus on the oppression. Not a time to focus on whatever else might be bad in your life. The Messiah is here. And because the Messiah is here, that is determinative of what your life should be like. It should be a life filled with celebration and a life of joy. So Jesus is saying fasting would be actually inappropriate at this time. It would be out of the question. His presence with them is a time of joy and celebration, not a time of sadness and sorrow. Jesus is here with them right now. Celebration. They should be partying. They should be having a great time. There should be no mourning as long as the bridegroom is with them. But then Jesus says, there's a time for fasting, but that time happens when the groom is taken away. And this is really the first allusion in Mark to the crucifixion of Christ, that at some point he will be taken away from them and, and their joy will be exchanged for sorrow and celebration will then turn to mourning. But this time is not that time. And so uh, I think on a sidelight, um, the the Gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they, I think they put that in there because when the gospels are actually being written, the timeline is really under the persecution of Nero. That's what's going on when the gospels are actually being written. And so it's really an encouragement to the church. I think Mark and the other writers are saying, look, there'll be days when Jesus seems far from you, that he's away. And, 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 but I want you to understand that just because it seems like Jesus is away, the reality is... He's alive. And that reality that Jesus is alive should be determinative of how you live your life as followers of Christ. So this bridegroom, our Lord Jesus, one day would be snatched away to suffer alone on the cross to atone for our sins. That day is coming, Jesus says. He will die the death that we all deserve because of our sin and our rebellion. He'll pay the price that we should have paid. He dies in our place. He bores, bears our wrath. And he takes our judgment. That's all going to happen. And Jesus begins to predict that. And when that happened, then there's a time to mourn. And the disciples should mourn. There's an appropriate time to fast and mourn. And it's when I consider the infinite price that Jesus paid for my sin. That's when we mourn. We think, okay, i got to step out of my life here and remember what Jesus did for me. That's when it's time to mourn. But we also need to realize that he's not dead he died, 
and they didn't fully understand, but now Jesus is alive. So our lives should be marked by joy because he is now with us. Jesus is alive. The Christian life should be marked by joy, by celebration, by parties, not by mourning. Because though Jesus did die, he is alive. And then Jesus goes on to put that discussion in a bigger context. He begins to say, old things must become new. The old needs to pass away completely so that new things can come. Verse 21, Jesus gives a parable. By the way, this, this is part of the stuff I cut out, but just briefly. Uh, the, the Pharisees here know exactly what Jesus is talking about. In the Talmud, is a bunch of parables like this. Like when you're young and you scribble on the paper, when you get older, you should ignore the scribbling because now you can write clearly, things like that. So it's throughout the Talmud. So Jesus isn't kind of giving them these weird you know, parables so they go, what's going on? They knew exactly what he's talking about, and this is why it's a controversy. This is the, the parables that Jesus uses here. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. There's an issue here that Jesus begins to talk about that goes deeper than just this issue of fasting alone. This new spiritual life that Jesus bought for us, that he inaugurated in the world, could it be contained in the old system of Judaism? Is it something you could like pack into Judaism, or would it need a fresh new form? Can you take the teachings of Jesus and pack them into Judaism? Is it, is it fit in there, or does it have to be something totally new, a totally new form? And what Jesus is saying is Judaism has passed away. It's an old form. It cannot contain the new, because what Jesus brings is totally new. So the, the important question, or the pertinent question, isn't why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? The Pharisees, the, the real question is, why didn't the Pharisees stop fasting? Because Jesus had come with this new thing. They're asking the wrong question. They're trying to fit the new and the old, and you can't fit the new and the old. The new has to have new forms to be relevant uh, and makes sense for what Jesus is bringing. So Jesus informs us that he came to make things new, not to reform things. Jesus did not reform Judaism. He made it new. It is new. It's brand new. Uh, and it, we do this all the time. We know this stuff. If I have a phone, right, if I get a new phone, I don't keep both, right? The, the new gives way to the old, right? The old things end up pass, passing away. Because there's no way I can use, I could use both, right, for different things. But if I want to use for the same function, then, then they're, they're clashing. I'm getting called. It's just messy, right? And with religion, it's the same thing. You can't fit two philosophies that are in many ways opposed into the same form. So with the coming of Messiah... Judaism has to give way to Christianity. This is not a popular message, by the way. This is racist today, right? But this is, this is not what I'm telling. This is what Jesus proclaimed. See, for in Jesus, the Hebrew faith finds fulfillment and completion, so much so that Judaism is no longer what it is. It becomes Christianity. 
It becomes what Jesus brought. See, in the ancient world, what Jesus is talking about in this parable is the skins of goats were, were stripped off as whole as, as could be possible. They took the, the skin right out. They were flexible, obviously, and they would fill the skins with new wine. And so what that means is as the wine fermented and the gases, the, 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 uh, the goat bladder could expand, right? And you could have new wine and new wine skins. But if you took old wine skins that were brittle and dried and you put new wine in it, and as it fermented and expanded, it would crack and it would burst. And then you'd have a broken wine skin, and all the wine would fall out on the ground. And so the wine skin's ruined, but also that which is contained within the wine skin is now useless as well. And Jesus is just saying what everybody knows. You, you can't put new things in old things. It destroys both. However, when you get new wine, if you put it in a new wine skin, it's fine. It expands. It fits the new teaching. And so the first parable, um, trying to unite the gospel of Jesus with the old religion of Judaism, uh, exemplified by fasting, right? They're trying to say, do the things we used to do and you'll be okay. And Jesus is saying, no, everything's new now. The bridegroom is here. Uh, so when the new piece of, of cloth, for example, you put it on, and when that new piece shrinks, it tears the old with it. Um, it's going to destroy everything. So with the coming of Jesus, get this, everything is new. Everything is new. The old isn't bad, right? We're not saying that, that Judaism is bad, right? It's just no longer usable. It's been replaced by something better. What Jesus has brought is better. Read Hebrews. That's what it's all about, that what Jesus brought, what the new covenant brought, is better than the old because the old was based upon works. The new is based upon grace. So there's no use in continuing to try to prop up something that's old and not working and give it a new face because it's futile. It's useless. And in fact, if you continue to do it, you not only destroy the form, but you destroy the message contained. And if Christianity was placed into Judaism, then the message of Jesus would have been watered down and it wouldn't have been the message of Christ as it is. So the parable about the bladder and about the patch both illustrate this radical new error that we're in with Jesus' coming. Jesus is the new cloth, and he's the new wine. He's not an attachment or an addition to the status quo. He is new, different, changed. Everything has changed with the coming of Jesus. You can't attach Jesus to what is old. You can't attach the new form to the old form, otherwise you destroy both. You can't uh, integrate it into pre-existing structures. You can't make it fit the Torah, you can't make it fit in the synagogue, you can't make it fit in those old structures, it has to change because the gospel is different. So the question here that Jesus is really asking with his parables is this, will the Pharisees try to add Jesus' teachings to their list of, of traditions and rituals? Is that what they're going to try to do, like sewing a new patch in an old garment? Because if they're going to try to do that, it's not going to work. Or will they forsake the shadow of the old covenant and embrace the reality of the new. They have to reject the old covenant and embrace the new. And the Jews of that day rejected Jesus because they could not see the new form. They hung on to the old. So it's not a question of whether disciples will incorporate Jesus into their old way of life, like fill an old container, but whether those disciples will become entirely new receptacles for the gospel 
so that Jesus can, in essence, ferment in them and expand them and take hold in their lives so they can be conduits of this new gospel. So it's not the main point today, but I want to ask this question. In your life and in my life, is Jesus just an add-on to your life, an addition? Or have you changed the very nature of your receptacle so that Jesus can invade every area of your life? Because we do this personally. We add Jesus into our schedule. Our schedule is the old form. Jesus requires a radical new life, a rescheduling of all our priorities, of all of our time, of all of our resources. He asks us to take, get rid of all those old forms, uh, old patterns of living, and say, the gospel defines who I am now, and everything has to come in line with that. And if you don't, if I don't, if I try to fit Jesus into the old form of how I live my life, then I water down the gospel until it's no gospel at all. And that's what Jesus is saying here in principle. You can't let the gospel be watered down. So with Jesus and his life, his ministry, his atoning death, his resurrection, uh, everything changes. And, and it changes for the better and it changes for the good. It's no longer a, a yoke over people's lives. It's now freeing. And there can be no compromise between Judaism and Christianity because Christianity is a fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promised. There's no compromise between works-based religion and salvation by grace. You can't put those two things together. That's why you have legalistic churches where people go and they, they think it's grace and then, then all these rules come up and they go, how do I, and they feel like they have to earn God's love and they forget all about grace because you're mixing two things. You can't. Either you're saved by works or you're saved by grace, not both. It's one or the other. It, and there is no congruency between my old life and my old schedule and my old priorities and that which is demanded of me by the gospel. They cannot be the same. So here's the application. Two things real quick, and then we're going to have some discussion. First application is this. Don't be a grumpy, somber Christian. Don't be, because you're not representing Christ well. Uh, a relationship with Jesus is not a solemn, boring affair. It should be a celebration. He's alive. The bridegroom is with us. We should be living our lives in a constant spiritual banquet, a constant party. Christians should have the best parties. We don't, right? We don't. We don't have the best. Let's be honest. We don't. We, can't, we have parties and we go, oh, that person's a little bit out of line. Hey, hey, don't go too wild over there. Let's, you know, a little bit more somber, a little bit more holy. Back in the fold. Okay, you're in the fold. And we do that. Did Jesus do that? Absolutely not. Jesus, I think Jesus had a smile on his face all the time. That's why I don't like the somber Jesus, that Jesus movie, the depressed Jesus. Jesus was happy, and we, of course, should be holy, but holiness does not equal somber, right? You can be holy and joyful. Matter of fact, I think if you are holy, you are joyful. I think those things go together. Well, we, we, shouldn't, uh, we should be moral, but not legalistic. Right? Those things are not the same. We, we should be full of joy and not stern, stern Christians, right? We get up there, we're just serious about Jesus because Jesus is a serious thing. Yes, the gospel's serious, but the gospel is about joy, right? It's a serious message, but a message that produces joys. So Christians do not mourn when it's time to celebrate, 
Christians do not mourn when it's time to celebrate. There's a few times. When we, when we do the Lord's Supper, there's a time to mourn. Remember. Remember what it cost. But most of our lives should be time to celebrate. Christian piety is often associated with psalmists because we have become, become so legalistic. It could be, be solemn because this is a serious thing. Can't, can't laugh. Can't, can't be joyful. Just got to... And if we're joyful, we, we, we use these, don't, don't, hope I don't offend anybody too much, uh, we use this, old, I have the joy of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? What it really means, when many people say that is, I'm, a miserable, I'm, I'm a, in a miserable time, and I really don't have any joy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim this joy of the Lord, this, this weird thing that just kind of is up there, and I can grab this joy of the Lord, and I have that, but it's really not joy, is it? it you should have joy. Joy is joy. It, you understand? It's joy is joy. You can't have like, it's like, I'm happy, but I'm not happy. Right? You, either you are or you aren't. And the gospel promises real joy in every circumstance. Um, acting the right way has taken precedence over knowing Jesus. That's the problem. If you know Jesus, you got him backwards. If you know Jesus, you will act the right way. You don't act the right way and hope to know Jesus. Right? You know him, you seek him, you seek after his face, you follow him, and these things come. You don't try to arbitrarily make rules and act the right way, because what you've just done is now you're in an old form. That's what the Pharisees did. Do these things, and you'll earn favor from God. It's not about doing, it's about being. Not about doing, about if you are following Jesus, you will do the right things. Look at th these are verses we don't really look at very much, and these are just three, but there's probably close to a hundred of similar verses like this. Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. What's that saying? Saying party. That's what it's saying. Party on. That's what it's trying to say. Rock on. It's saying party because God is good. Look at this, uh, Ephesians 5, should be very familiar. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart. Right? This is about joy to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. This is about living a life of joy. So much joy that you're walking around and life is horrible and bad things are happening. What are you doing? You're making melody in your heart to the Lord. Why? Because you have Joy, and, you, and, and Jesus brings joy. Ecclesiastes teaches that life on earth is full of suffering, and life is not generally good. That's what Ecclesiastes teaches. But also, at the same time, Ecclesiastes says, enjoy life. Take it as a gift from God. We're called to enjoy life uh, is, is this persistent theme in the book. This is just one example, Ecclesiastes 2, uh, 24 to 25. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Realize that? That eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in our work are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? It's based in relationship with him. Enjoy. Go out to dinner. and enjoy. Joke around. Have a good time. Don't go out to dinner and go... Go to represent Jesus, right? And you, and you think, I've got to be, got to be, do a good gift, good, good tip. I can't say anything stupid that somebody else might. 
if we live like that, it's all law, isn't it? We go there, and if your attitude is, I'm just going to love Jesus, you know what's going to happen? You're going to do the right thing. And if you blow it because you're a sinner like me, then the Holy Spirit's going to take care of that. Right? He's going to take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. We put too much pressure on ourselves to be holy. You are holy already in Christ. You are righteous already. Go and live that truth out. But don't try to micromanage your life with the law because the old is not the new. What could be more honoring to God than to enjoy all that he has given us in our freedom? And here's the truth. To not enjoy life is to deny that God is good. If, you don't, if, if you're a somber, miserable Christian, you're denying that God is good. God can be good in the midst of the bad. Mourn when it's time to mourn. When bad things happen, yeah, feel those things, but understand that God is good all the time, 24-7. And he wants us to live a life of celebration and joy and not be legalistic and moralistic and go and project our brokenness on somebody else. And that's why Christians are very legalistic. They see a sinner and they don't want to look at themselves. They can't find joy in Jesus. And so they go, you're bad. And it makes them feel better. Much better to follow Jesus and find the joy that comes just naturally out of following him and not judging others to make ourselves look good. So don't be grumpy. Don't be a somber Christian. Um, Some of us have to work on it. Right? Some of us have to work on it more than others. Um, and it, maybe it goes back to just kind of reevaluating, reevaluating my relationship with Jesus. Do, do, am, do I really believe God is good? Do I really believe I am totally redeemed, that the work's been done? And if you can't find joy in those things, then I'm serious about this. Seek a counselor because there's something, there's a disconnect there between receiving good things. It's like getting a present and you, and you someone gives you a present you go, yeah, and you walk away. We don't do that. We go, thank you. We receive it with joy. Well, that's how we should be. And if we can't do that, it says something about us that we need to, t- t- to take care of that. Uh, application number two, we need to be brave enough to throw out old forms and embrace the new. Brave enough to throw out old forms and embrace the new. Jesus never condemned fasting. Jesus actually fasted himself but formal and compulsory Jewish fasting would not fit in with the freedom and spontaneity of the new life that he brought. What are the forms that we have? Are we stifling new life by old forms, however beloved they might be to us? Right? I know churches that still have revival meetings. To those revival meetings, an old form that was very, very effective, Right? Early part of the, the, the 20th century, very effective. People from the streets would come to revival meetings. The only people, and I've gone to a few, the only people that come to revival meetings are Christians. Christians. Very few lost people come. Very few. It's an old form. We have to do things differently. And so we love the old forms because they, they remind us of the goodness of God in the past. And that's where they should remain, Right? We should remember the faithfulness of the old form. Like, you know, it was good that, that God called Israel, right? It's a good thing because if God didn't call Israel, we wouldn't have the scriptures. We wouldn't have the testimony of the Old Testament that shows the coming of the Messiah, the prophecies that, that show that Jesus actually is who he says he is. That's all good. But if we hang on to the form of law, 
It's a problem. So the old forms are good, but they're not always appropriate for our time. So are we neglecting our call to become all things to all people for the purpose of winning them because we're so attached to the old forms of worship, the old forms of church, the old forms of personal patterns of how we manage our time, our, the old forms of our spending patterns, the old form of our standard of living. We keep those things, and Jesus fits into all those things. Rather than take all those things, we dump them all out, right? All those forms, we dump them all out, and we, and we just bury them. And then we take Jesus, and we say, Jesus, now what do I do? What do I do? And I begin to build forms. My standard of living should be this. My amount of generosity should be this. My time management should be this. How I worship God should be that. All those things are based with the center of Jesus. Not what we like. Not what we prefer. Not what makes us feel comfortable. Wherever Jesus went, people felt uncomfortable. So wherever we go, if you know, religious people feel comfortable... For me, it's a little check. Why do they feel comfortable? Is it comfortable because they sense my love and my compassion? And my That's okay. But are they comfortable because I'm compromising? It's a whole different thing. You need to be discerning about that. Some forms we have to have. I think some forms are uh, eternal. Like I think preaching, expository preaching, that's what Jesus did. That's what God did in the Old Testament to his people. I think some form of preaching has to be a, a form. What it looks, it might not look like this anymore, but there has to be the exposition of God's word, because that's where truth lies. But we have to get rid of things that are unsuitable. Remember three, maybe three retreats ago, the trellis and the vine? I remember the trellis and the vine illustration, right? So we think many things are, are vines, but in reality, trellises, right? Trellises, you hang, the vine is the truth. Trellis is just the form you hang it on. You can change a trellis. Just don't get rid of the vine, right? So we need to kind of remind ourselves of that. We, we need to do all we can to keep our forms fresh. Otherwise, the form and what we put in it, the gospel, will be destroyed. That's Jesus' warning. If you try to fit new wine into old wineskins, you'll destroy both. And we can't destroy both. The, the, the form won't work. We've ruined the form, and we've also ruined the message. So let me just, just time of discussion before I close in prayer. I want to talk about, first of all, um, joy in the Christian life. Why do you guys think that many Christians, and maybe you disagree with me, maybe you don't think this, many Christians, I think, are not very filled with joy, that they're very somber and very, you know, you don't see a lot of Christians emulating joy, unless it's sometimes false. Why is that? Okay, yes. Yeah. I think exactly it. We don't know the word very well, so we have no idea what to be joyful about. Right? Yeah. Good and loud, but they can hear you, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we we're, we're searching after the wrong thing. We're searching after happiness that it comes from temporal things rather than the one that brings eternal happiness, right? Seeking, denying self, right? That's what actually it's counterintuitive, right? It doesn't make sense. Denying self brings happiness. Fulfilling self brings miserableness, right? What else? Why are Christians? Yeah, so the self-pressure. How, how, what does that pressure look like? 
Okay, so guilt. So I'm a sinner. We, again, it kind of goes back to the promises thing, right? We, we don't realize the level of how we have been saved, that Jesus paid the penalty completely, not only for our sin, Old Testament, our sin and guilt, right? He paid the penalty for both of us. We didn't have to feel guilty about it. We've been freed from that, too, by the, by the cross. Yeah. Don't put pressure on yourself. That makes you grumpy. <laughs> what else? One more. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we go, that's kind of like what the Pharisees did with the adding the two day, other days of fasting. Yeah, we're really holy, but people might not see how holy we are. So we'll add Monday, we'll add Thursday fasting, then we're even more holy, right? So we go out to dinner, for example, and we, we're following Jesus, and we go, oh, i got to be more holy, right? And i got to put, you know, some extra, extra holy stuff, right? In the church I grew up in, it wasn't, you know, women couldn't wear, well, they could, but it was kind of frowned upon. Couldn't, couldn't wear pants, had to wear skirts, because pants were, weren't, you know, were unholy for women, and skirts were holy, right? And I was, at the, I was thinking, my goodness, in Africa, they don't wear anything hardly, you know? <laughs> Where's the holy, I mean, it, it's, so, it's cultural, right? I'm not saying come to church naked next week, that would be a bad thing, you've got to understand the culture around you, but, but a lot of those things are trellises, and we add them to, what, question, are we adding them in order that we might not make help, it could be a good thing, we don't want people to stumble, right? So we say, okay, we got to put a little, some boundaries here, because people have some freedom in Christ, we got to be careful in this, you know, in this, that's okay, we need to, that's discernment, right? Um, but you have to do this, right? And I think I told this illustration before, when I first got saved, my hair was fairly long, and the organist at my church I was saved in, didn't like my long hair, so know what, know what Christian Phil did? He grew it out a little longer. <laughs> right? That was a Christian. Was that a good thing? No. Right? Because that's the heart of rebellion. Now, the, the lesson I taught was really good. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? So the good, good things can be bad things depending on our heart attitude. Okay, so any, anything else about joy in the Christian life? But think about that. When, when you're... When you're going through life and you're kind of like, I'm I'm being a grumpy, miserable Christian, why? Why aren't you experiencing this great joy and this lifelong adventure and party that Jesus calls us to? Why is that? we got to refocus our eyes. Second question. This idea of new forms for the gospel. Why is the church, not this church, the church, so opposed to new forms. And by new forms, um, let's, take, let's take this building, for example, or, or any church building. Um, how many people here, just by show of hands, I'm going to put you on the spot, believe that a building of some sort, either owned or rented, is necessary to have a church? Okay, good. Good. Because uh, most people in Africa and in Southeast Asia meet in churches 
that don't have any buildings, any structures. They're under trees. They're in the streets. They just they gather. This church, these buildings are a trellis, right? They're not, because you're the church, right? The people of the church. And so why, why, are we, why do we have the propensity, the, the tendency to hold on to the old and not be brave enough to embrace something, a new thing? I'm asking you people who don't like change. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, so the judgment of the change or of you? Change. change. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I think so. Big. Yeah. Not comfortable. That's 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 the big thing for me. I don't. You might think I'm a liar, but I don't really like change a whole lot because it makes me really uncomfortable. You know. Um, but it's but also when you're uncomfortable, you're probably right in the center of God's will. That's why I know that I'm supposed to be married to Patty. No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's a little joke, little joke, little ha-ha, little, well, little joke there. <laughs> why change? Why, why do we kind of, we, we try to fit the gospel into kind of these old forms that might need to change, right? And part of the issue is, I think for me, is what to change, if anything, where to start, right? Because you can you can. You know, you can turn the boat really quick and have all the people fly off. You're both going in the right direction, maybe, but you've lost a lot of people along the way. Sometimes a slow turn is good, but if you turn too slow, then you might not get to the people that are drowning. So is a, you know, how do we you know, make the change? So what else do you think about this idea of change in new forms of the gospel? Okay. Yep, again, back to our understanding of what the gospel is, the knowledge, the promises of God, right? We're, we're hanging on to things that give us comfort and kind of these things make sense. The gospel, the gospel message makes sense, but how we, you know, living for others, that doesn't make sense to people, right? It doesn't make sense. What else? So the reason I'm asking this, by the way, is next week we're going to close the church down for three months. And we're going to meet uh, behind the behind the uh, the town hall. Is that okay with you guys? Hmm? You, people would freak out if I if actually, we actually did that, wouldn't it? I I guarantee, even though we're talking about it, some of you wouldn't even come. And my question, the reason I say it, and we're not going to do that, by the way, but because that'd be the boat be turning real quick and flipping over and burst into flames, uh, but. I said it because I want, in your brain, your first response. What was your first response? Don't say it out loud. What was your first response? All right? If, you're, if, you're, if your first response, no, I see. Yeah, okay. But if your first response was, yeah, that might reach people, good response. If you said, mm, that's not going to be very uncomfortable. I don't know if I can make it. Mm, what's going to happen to this? What's going to happen to that? Then we need to check because we've lost sight. What we're trying to do is take something different. Yeah. What? Radical. Radical. Yeah. 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 Bible. How many familiar with Bible thumper? Remember that term? Bible thumper. Young people. Bible thumper. Jesus freak. You know, radical. Yeah. Jesus was pretty radical, right? So, pretty, pretty. Um, what else? Any, any concerns about this type of thing? Because this is kind of scary. I think this is one of the most scary passages for modern evangelicals 
this, this new wine, when we take the, the general principle, obviously applies to Judaism and Jesus' new message, but the principle is that some, sometimes old forms, you don't, you don't adapt them, right? You don't, you don't add to them. You just got to get rid of them and do something totally radically new. Otherwise, you lose the old form, and you don't have a new form, and you lose the message in between. And there are churches, mainline churches, that have old forms. They do like they've always done it. And do we see the gospel being preached in those churches? No, we don't. Because the form has taken precedence over the new wine. And uh, I don't know what that means for us in the future. We'll be talking about that. But we need to be considering some things. I just want to close with this. This is what Luke, uh, this uh, passage is mentioned in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Luke is the only one that adds this line. It's not on the screen, so listen. Jesus says this at the end of the parable in Luke. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. I think, and um, that word better really could be translated, I think the old is good enough, right? And so I think what Jesus is saying, at least in Luke, that was recorded there is, there are some people who don't care about the new wine. They like the old. It's the way they've always done it. It's good enough. Why rock the boat? It's, it's, we've been going, it's been going good for 2,000 years. Why change it now? And Jesus says, after drinking old wine, people don't want the new. They just say the old is, is good enough. Good enough. Why rock the boat? Uh, Jesus, I think, comes out against that, as we see as we go through Mark, where he says, basically... Uh, good enough doesn't work. You need, you need me. You need new wine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us that you brought the new wine of the gospel. You broke through those old forms that we might find life in you, that by our faith, by trusting in that work on the cross, that we can be saved and find this life that's marked by joy and celebration. Father, we, we are mournful that of the price that has been paid, that Jesus had to die for us. And we understand the cost involved, at least in part. But we know now that the, the, the one who was crucified is risen and is alive. Then we are called to live a life of celebration, giving glory to you for all the good gifts that you give us to eat and to drink and work for all good things come from you. We want to find joy in them to bring you glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.